to introduce myself, my name is Richard Fusick, and I'm the archivist who works with the records of the General Land Office, or what we know today as the Bureau of Land Management. I also work with the records of the Bureau of Indian Affairs, and there's a direct relationship between those two record groups when it comes to understanding land. So uh, consequently, uh, researchers that visit our office uh, make many inquiries in regard to that. And I hope to explain to you how these two record groups work together. Uh, there's a pamphlet that's available in the other room if you wish. You can pick one up that describes much of what we do with the land records and it's available after, the, after this presentation. This is an example of the deputy surveyor's contract with the General Land Office to, surfer, to survey a township. And township surveying is the first step that the General Land Office performs before the land is made available uh, for sale. Uh, that series of records is arranged by contract and bond number. They're under by state. There's an example of the contract and the bond. Uh, here's a town site of Arthur, Nebraska. Uh, we have a significant amount of material in the land records that deal with the original uh, town sites uh, in, the, uh, in the nation. And this is a photograph of one of those towns uh, in the state of Nebraska. Uh, in addition to uh, uh, the town site dockets, there are correspondence of uh, letters received and sent related to this. This gives you an idea of the stack areas where we use the uh, track books. This is a Nebraska track book, and uh, the track books are the key to opening up the records in your research. And if you know the section, township, and range, we can select the appropriate track book for you, and you can look up the information. This is uh, an example of an abstract, a Nebraska abstract quarter report. This example is Daniel Freeman, who is recognized as the first homesteader when the homesteads were made available. And he's generally considered uh, the very first person to apply for the homestead out of, uh, out of Nebraska City, I believe. Here we are looking at the land patent. Do not confuse the land patent with the land patent case file. There are two different kinds of records. We have the land patents uh, pre-1908. We have no land patents after that. They're arranged by state. They're under by the historical land office. These land offices uh, closed when the business was finished. And today, uh, if you're interested in uh, records in uh, the Bureau of Land Management land offices, they have been uh, moved to different locations in the country. Example of a Nebraska land patent, Brownsville, Nebraska. So land entry case files contains the application and certificate of publication of intention, homestead final proof, <coughs> testimony and witnesses, naturalization papers sometimes. 
because you have to be a U.S. citizen. And uh, if you did not have the naturalization papers, you would have a witness test testify that you were a U.S. citizen or about to be a U.S. citizen. The final certificate and various kinds of correspondence. Of course, the case file can contain a wealth of genealogical information, name and age, post office location, land description, description of house and improvements, which was required. You had a five-year period in which you had to develop your homestead and show proof that you did this. And the land office uh, required you to show this information, and they would generally have a witness who would uh, uh, swear to the fact that you performed the things that you did, put in a fence or built a barn or whatever you did to the property. Example of stack area. These are indexes to the 20th century land entry case files. We have been discussing 19th century land case files. 20th century land case files are arranged in a different way because in 1907, by order of Congress, the Department of Interior reorganized its, its records. As the records became more voluminous, they were uh, re required to find a more efficient way to manage the records. So the 20th century records, starting about 1908, have an index system in which to locate them. You do not have to go to the track book to identify them. Here's Daniel Freeman's Homestead case file out of Nebraska, Brownsville Land Office. I stand corrected, I think I mentioned Nebraska City, but it's Brownsville Land Office. His written application, proof of improvements as we had discussed. Homestead certificate, his final certificate. Now that's not, that's not the patent. That's a final certificate in which the land office issues to the homesteader upon completion. Ultimately, all this information uh, goes back to Washington, and the uh, clerks in the land office here in Washington would take that information and enter into the central office track book. There are two sets of track books. There are the regional track books in which the land office does its business, and there's the Washington central office track book. So this information is entered into that, and then ultimately the land patent is sent to the land office, which is then uh, to two individuals that work in that land office, very important persons, the register and the receiver. That's their titles. They operated the land office. They had uh, lots of authority to adjudicate issues related to land disputes. So the land patent would be sent to them. They, in turn, would give it to the uh, qualified landowner. Here's an example of William F. Cody's desert land entry. Buffalo Bill's, known as Buffalo Bill, he uh, acquired a desert land homestead in Wyoming. And in the early 20th century, he completed his land uh, entry. His affidavit. 
witnesses of citizenship, non-mineral affidavits, those were also required. Here's a plat of Cody's ranch. If you haven't been to Wyoming, Cody, Wyoming, named after him, not too far from Yellowstone. That's the blueprint of his ranch. Other kinds of records include agricultural college scrip. Congress decided to make available uh, college scrip to those states that did not have public land available to sell for the purpose of raising money for educational reasons. So they made available scrip for those states. So a particular state that didn't have any public land available, say, such as South Carolina, they would have available script to sell. Upon selling that script, that individual would then go out into the public land area, the frontier, and use that script to acquire land. And in many cases, those individuals that acquired that script would sell it to land speculators who would then in turn sell it to other individuals who would purchase the land. This is a way for those states that didn't have public land to raise money for educational uh, purposes to acquire uh, that benefit. We have uh, a large series of agricultural college script arranged by state there under by script number. They're very interesting records. Then we, in addition, have military bounty land warrant case files. Here's an example of a warrant. These warrants were issued to veterans in the 19th century up to the Civil War. And these benefits were, benefits were received uh, as for service, uh, and they would take them and go out into the public land and use them to acquire uh, land. In many cases, these uh, warrants were sold to land speculators and they in turn sold them to others. And we have the case files that document all of that, tens of thousands of them. They are arranged by Act of Congress. They're under by acreage and under that by the warrant number. We must have that kind of information in order to identify a military bounty land warrant case file. In many cases, researchers visit us with they don't have all that information. There's an application, warrant application. And we also have a large amount of private land claims or Spanish land grants for the state of California, New Mexico and Arizona, and the Gulf states, Louisiana, Alabama, Mississippi, Florida. The uh, military bounty land warrants that we have are, uh, excuse me, the Spanish land grants that we have are dockets that were used to be adjudicated by the by the uh, Board of Land Commissioners. The Board of Land Commissioners uh, looked at these grants 
and uh, had to determine whether they were legal and that the owner uh, had right to hold this land. Uh, many of the cases uh, after the Board of Land Commissioners uh, made their decisions went on to courts where they had to uh, decide as to who the real owners were. This, is, this one is an example of Rancho Santa Rosa, California. There's the land patent, the Santa Rosa land patent. Of course, to find these, we have an index. This is an example of the index to the Santa Rosa land, private land claim for Julian Estrada. These are what they look like in the archival boxes that we have stored. Here's a case file for Julian Estrada. These are the indices of private land claims at one example. We hope to put these on microphone. Among our records are records of letters received. Correspondence that came into the land office went to a division, the Mails and Files Division. The clerks looked at the correspondence and had to make a decision as to what division of operation would respond to that correspondence. And uh, they would assign the letter a number. They would enter it into a register. We have, in letters received, approximately 6,000 boxes, such as you see here, of, of correspondence. So uh, they are trifolded, and uh, many re researchers who visit our office look through the registers to identify the particular correspondence they wish, and we bring the boxes out for them to look at. Once the correspondence went to the other division, such as uh, Railroad Rights-of-Way Division, as an example, the work would be done on that correspondence, and the letter would be returned to the Mails and Files of Division, but not always. Sometimes the issues were significant enough where they would keep the correspondence and compile a whole different series of uh, letters in that division. So when you go to the Mails and Files Division, you're looking up a correspondence you find in a register and you discover it's not there. Uh, it's because they never returned it and it's part of a series of correspondence that's in the uh, railroad rights away. Severe General. Another uh, division, very important, of correspondence sent from the state surveyor general to Washington, and the uh, response f uh, to them by the uh, commissioner of general land office. And here's an example of letters sent. Of course, they didn't have carbon paper or any other means of copying other than a clerk to sit down and copy the original letter in a uh, volume and then would send the letter off to the uh, appropriate person. So we have a large series of letters sent 
to the Surveyor General's office of the various states in the country. In addition to that, we have the records of the Office of Indian Affairs, and this is the massive index system we have. As you can see, it's a very large. We have hundreds of thousands of index cards dealing with the central classified file. The central classified file starts in 1907 and was organized based upon the uh, order of Congress to reorganize uh, the Department of Interior. Once we identify the index, we can then cross-index that to the appropriate correspondence under that Indian agency. Here's an example of a case file in the central classified file. The most popular or most common inquiries made with the Indian land records deal with airship case files. For many Indians have to show proof of citizenship uh, in that particular uh, tribe. And they do that by looking at the airship case files, files that have a significant amount of information dealing with genealogy, their ge genealogical family. In this case, it's a Winnebago airship case file. an example of the negotiations to a treaty from the Bureau of Indian Affairs. We have all the original treaties that were signed by uh, the various Indian tribes and approved by the United States Senate. They are here at the National Archives and available on microphone. The negotiations that led up to those treaties we have all that correspondence that related to all of that. And here's an example of the negotiations to the Winnebago Treaty. How, how uh, to, effective, to do effective research in land records here at the National Archives includes looking at the statutes at large, which affect land ownership, the laws that were passed, and that are published, all laws published by Congress. Land description, the section, township, and range. One of the mistakes we get from many researchers is, well, our land's in such and such a county. Well, counties don't count in land records uh, with the federal government. What is important is the township and range for all the track books are organized that way. Without the township and range, we cannot locate the information you hope to find. Is there a good uh, index for uh, maps to be able to, if you have a township range or you have a county? Well, there are surveyor field notes, which we have some, but not, not too many. Most of the surveyor field notes are recognized as active records and are part of the Bureau of Land Management's operation. Many of those are at the Bureau of Land Management Eastern States Office in Springfield, Virginia. Then, of course, the type of land transaction, whether it's a cash transaction, a homestead or desert land or timber culture. Timber culture, if you're not familiar with our requirements to plant timber on the land, 
if you didn't uh, fulfill that requirement, you couldn't get the, uh, get the land in a five-year period. In many cases, timber cultures would fail. People would acquire land and try to work that land over five years and couldn't plant a tree on there. They tried, but wouldn't happen. The same thing with the desert land. You had to have uh, developed water to be used on that land. Uh, requirement uh, under the desert land. So someone like William F. Cody, for an example, his homestead, uh, he had to develop water there, and he did. Uh, there's an interesting story behind him uh, creating a water company in uh, his area of the country. Other unique in issues include rights of way and Indian reservations. Many rights of way have been uh, acquired across Indian reservations, and uh, the records that document that are part of the records of the Bureau of Indian Affairs, and also uh, documentation in the Bureau of Land Management. One of the things you have to pay very close attention to when you're looking at the track book is not just the entry of the individual that is acquiring the land, but the notations that are put in there by the clerks. They can lead you to a very important documents. And generally under section one, there are 36 sections in the township, and under section one, various laws are cited, statutes that uh, affect the land and need to pay attention to the first section of the township in the track book to help you find that information. Letters received and sent, and the various land office divisions of operation. Other things that are important are background reading. One should look at secondary sources before coming to the National Archives to do research with primary records. One of the reasons for that is if you're looking at an historical work, they may have National Archives citations in there. And if they do, you should take notes of that and uh, bring that with you, which will help you to find the documents you're interested in. The history of state and land development, relations with Native Americans, understanding Indian treaties or acts of Congress, and of course, the anecdotal information from your family can play a part. Other records, Department of Interior and federal agencies would include the Secretary of Interior Record Group 48. Records of the U.S. Geological Survey, Record 57. Records of the National Park Service. Records of the Bureau of Reclamation, which are not here, they used to be, but they're now in Denver. Records of U.S. Fish and Wildlife. Records of Bureau of Insular Affairs. If you're interested in records related to Puerto Rico, records related to the Philippine Islands, Cuba, those records will be part of the insular affairs, not records of the Bureau of Land Management. And of course, the records of the U.S. Bureau of Mines. Other archivists that work with these records in our office, Mary Frances Morrow, who is a specialist in Indian records and also works with land. George Briscoe and Dennis Edelin, they're finding aid specialists who work in room G28 and help you get started. 
Suzanne Harris. She is the special archivist who's a specialist in immigration and naturalization. And Jane Fitzgerald, who works the vault and does much work on photographic requests. Many of our treasured records are in a vault, such as William F. Cody as an example. And sometimes we get uh, researchers who are interested in getting copies of documents that are in a vault, and she does that. Here's an example of finding aids, preliminary inventory of the Bureau of Indian Affairs, and land entry records. Microphone publications, so that, uh, American Indian Select Catalog of National Archives Microphone Publications Guide to the Records of the, in the National Archives Relating to American Indians, Guide to Cartographic Records for Land and Native Americans, Guide to American Indians in the Congressional Serial Set. We, these are you should become familiar with. There is a website that you can do some research for land federal land. It's called the BLM website, glorecords.blm.gov. Unfortunately, at the present time, it's shut down by court order because of major issues that deal with land and Native Americans. Of course, the national census roll, Indian census roll, and books to read that will help you understand the history of land and Native Americans the History of Public Land Law Development by Paul W. Gates and The Great Father by Francis Paul Puca are an example of books that would help you uh, do your research in land records. And of course, the specific kinds of forms, NATF Form 84, which are available in the other room along with the pamphlets, if you wish to order a land entry, a copy of a land entry case file. pamphlet. And uh, before I close, I'd like to discuss with you the things that we don't have. For many people come to us believing we have certain kinds of records that we really don't have. And examples are the original 13 colonies. We have no land records related to the original 13 colonies or the original 13 states. The reason, of course, is that the uh, government authorities of the colonies, when they became states, held on to the authority of public land in those states. So we have no federal records of land for the original 13 states. You'll have to visit the state archives. In addition to that, we have no land records for Texas, for Texas was a republic before entering the United States. Therefore, all the public land in Texas is under state authority. The state of Maine, the state of Maine at one time was part of Massachusetts Bay Colony, and it has all of its public land. Vermont, same circumstance. Tennessee, which was once part of North Carolina, it has all its own land records. Kentucky, which in its early history was part of Virginia, it has its land records. West Virginia, which was part of Virginia, and holds its own land records and then Hawaii. None of those states do we have any land records. 
Not all federal land records are with us. Some of them are with the Bureau of Land Management Eastern States Office located at 7450 Boston Boulevard, Springfield, Virginia. The BLM Eastern States Office holds all of the Eastern State track books and include the old northwest of, of the Ohio Valley, which includes the Great Lakes area, and the old southwest of the Gulf states. And those midwestern states that border the Mississippi River. So uh, if you're interested in any of those states, you would have to visit the Bureau of Land Management Eastern States Office or write them a letter, ask them to look in a track book to get the information you wish. After you receive that information, then you need to contact us because we have all the case files and all the related correspondence of letters sent and received that deal with the issues that surround your interest in those files. The Bureau of Land Management has a significant amount of material that has not as of yet been uh, brought to the National Archives. In addition to that, the Eastern States Office holds all of the post-1908 land patents. Okay, land patents, not the case files, but the patents. Also, we do not hold all of the private land claims. And when I originally mentioned them, there are many private land claims located in the various state archives throughout the country and historical organizations, such as the California Bankrupt uh, Library. It has a significant number of Spanish land grants for California. One of the uh, issues that deal with California private land claims is the San Francisco fire back in 1906, in which a large number of the documents were destroyed in the fire, but many that they saved ended up in the uh, Bancroft Library. Also, other sources to look at if you're interested in Spanish land grants in California would be the Archdiocese uh, Archives in Los Angeles. New Mexico, New Mexico State Archives has a very large amount of Spanish land grants, case files. They need them for their everyday uh, uh, state business that carries on related to land. We have some here in, in Washington, but they have the uh, greater majority of them. So if you're interested in New Mexico, you should visit their archives. Another source is the Rocky Mountain Region Regional Office of the National Archives in Denver. You may want to visit them if you have any interest in Spanish land grants. And then, of course, along the Gulf area would include Louisiana, Alabama, Mississippi, Florida, state archives. The frequently asked questions by many archivists are, is the Homestead Act still active today? It is not. In the continental United States, the Homestead Act was repealed in 1976. If you uh, were interested before that, it was available. But the last homestead uh, to be acquired was in 1988 in Alaska. 
there isn't at the present time any homestead available. The basic information we need if you are interested in researching land records, once again, are the state. The historical land office is absolutely critical because in the 19th century records, that's how they're arranged by state, by historical land office, in type of land transactions such as cash, homestead, desert land, timber culture. And then, as we mentioned, the land description, section, township, and range. There are no land records for non-federally recognized Indians. There's been a large number of Eastern tribes that have been uh, given federal recognition. We do not have those records, such as the Pequot Indians in New England. Uh, they received federal recognition, I believe, in the early 80, 1980s. And we do not have any land records related to uh, their uh, reservation. So the, that kind of concludes what I have to offer to you in regard to land records and Indian records. I'll be happy to answer any questions. Okay. Well, thank you. We do have land records of New Mexico, uh, a large amount of land records of New Mexico uh, for that early time period. Uh, to identify uh, the records that you're interested in, as I mentioned, you have to have the section township and range. We'll be happy to bring the track book out for you to look at New Mexico to see if that individual is among those records. What we, have a, what we don't have much of is the Spanish land grants. That we don't have much of. It's a part of the state archives in Santa Fe. Okay. 